Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In today's episode, we will focus on the patient experience of chronic pain and opioid prescribing. This is based on the module on pain management and opioids for NEGAM Knowledge Plus. NEGM Knowledge Plus is an adaptive learning platform that is based on active testing rather than passive reading to increase the efficiency of knowledge retention. The module on pain management and opioids is freely available at knowledgeplus.nejm.org. The cases explored in this module include cases where opioids are used in the management of pain, including cases where there is evidence of problematic opioid use. In the last podcast in this series, we discussed the physician's experience in handling these situations. In today's podcast, We will hear the point of view of a patient receiving opioids for chronic pain on the difficulties encountered in interactions with the healthcare system. We are joined today by Dr. Daniel Alford and Dr. Don Unger, who will help us explore these issues. Dr. Daniel Alford is Professor of Medicine, Associate Dean of Continuing Medical Education, and Director of the Safer and Competent Opioid Prescribing Education, or Scope of Pain, program at the Boston University School of Medicine. He's on staff in the section of General Internal Medicine and Director of the Clinical Addiction Research and Education Unit at Boston Medical Center. His clinical, educational, and research interests focus on managing opioid use disorders and safer opioid prescribing for pain. New York City born and living in exile in Massachusetts, Don Unger writes fiction, satire, and nonfiction. In the latter category, he is particularly interested in gender issues related to parenting, environmental issues, and the plight of people in chronic pain. He holds an MFA from the University of Michigan and a PhD from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. We're here to reflect on patients' experience being treated with long-term opioids for chronic pain during our national opioid crisis. And as you know, it's really hard to fully understand the patient perspective without talking to a patient. So we're here with a patient, Don Unger, who is a writer, teacher, and editorial consultant who suffers from chronic pain actually for over 30 years. So Don, can you tell us about your history of chronic pain? Sure. So I'm 57 now, and uh, this basically started in 1990. My family has a sort of genetic predisposition towards migraines and permanent headaches. So that started around then. Around 2000, I began having orthopedic problems, chiefly bone spurs, which necessitated a number of surgeries, three shoulder surgeries, a two-level cervical fusion. And most recently, in the past two years or so, I've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I've pretty much taken everything you can take, NSAIDs, both prescription and non-prescription, Neurontin and the seizure medications, that sort of thing, antidepressants, muscle relaxants, nutraceuticals, things like calcium and magnesium, that kind of thing. And pretty quickly, uh, I ended up taking narcotic medication on a regular basis. Initially, that was Demerol. Then for about 15 years, it was uh, MS Contin. Uh, about 15 milligrams twice a day with a little bit of oxycodone as uh, rescue med. And in the last, I guess going back to this past summer, I've started using a fentanyl patch instead. Let's just talk about that for a moment. So we're in an opioid crisis in this country, and much-needed attention has been focused on overprescribing of opioids, specifically for chronic pain, but also for acute pain including national expert panels that have convened and put together guidelines that talk about using universal precautions and how we can prescribe opioids more safely. And really the goal is to prevent opioid misuse, people running into problems, people being harmed by these medications, but yet making sure that patients who need them continue to have access to them. And so it's a complicated balance between keeping people safe, but also 
keeping access to people who are benefiting. How has this whole opioid crisis and response to it played out for you, a patient who has chronic pain who's on chronic opioids? Well, things began getting problematic for me uh, around 2013. For a number of years, I've been signing annual pain agreements. And the one that I was given then just had a number of impossible to comply with clauses. Things like you agree that you'll come in for a pill count within an hour anytime you're asked. And I've sometimes worked several hours away from home. Never mind the fact that I'm not supposed to be carrying the medication around with me. So, But basically, I was just told, don't worry about it, just sign it. And I couldn't do that. I mean, it, it's kind of, you wouldn't sign a mortgage that uh, would take your house away for uh, being a day late and a dollar short. One of the other problems with that agreement is that it was a one strike and you're out kind of thing. So if you were found guilty of one violation of the contract, you were subject to a potential ban on the prescription of narcotics by any practitioner in the entire medical network where I get most of my care. So things have really gotten quite problematic, I would say. So as you know, there's been much focus on the very real opioid crisis, and people who are prescribing these medications are trying to do it more safely. How has physicians' focus on the dangers of opioids affected your relationship with your physicians and specifically around treating your pain? Well, I would take a step back. And to me, the context for this is what I'm beginning to see as the deprofessionalization of medicine, of the number of people and organizations that are able to get between the patient and the physician. For example, a pharmacist cannot like a pharmacist. An individual pharmacist can not like the way I look or have a bad feeling about me and therefore reject filling a prescription. Never mind official gatekeepers like the care organization, um, like the insurer, like the pharmaceutical benefit manager, those sorts of things. So my early experience with medical care, as I said, I'm 57, so it's been a while, uh, had been that I have a direct relationship with this provider. This provider and I sort of work on trying to maintain my health, and that's it. The provider says, I think you ought to do this, or I'm prescribing that, and that's what happens. At this point, you know, you asked how things have changed. I think that doctors are scared, basically. And I think that doctors have been put in the position of having to think about what's dangerous for them. And while um, opioids are dangerous, there's a real problem. It needs to be addressed. step needs to be taken. I see a spillover where doctors are now protecting themselves from oversight, basically, or excessive oversight, rather than taking care of their patients. And I understand that. A medical license is tremendously valuable, tremendously expensive thing to earn. And to put that at risk, I can understand why people would be a little uh, hesitant about that. But you know, I mean, what I read is that you have entire practices that are just saying, we don't want to deal with pain patients. Uh, you have physicians who are just, I won't write narcotics for anybody ever. And that's, I don't know, it's getting to be a rather crimped definition of care. Yeah, I think you highlight some really important points. And let me just come back to the pharmacy bit. And I actually didn't really appreciate the risk that pharmacists are under as well, that they also can be held accountable if they dispense an opioid to somebody who then subsequently runs into problems. So they're in a situation where they don't even have all the information that I, as a primary care provider, has, and they're trying to make a decision. So I think patients are oftentimes caught in the middle of exactly what you're saying, fear among the providers, among the pharmacists. So I think that all results in making it more difficult for our patients to get the care that they have been getting or should be getting. I think also we're very concerned about excess expense in the medical system. And I think if you look at what happens when narcotics are prescribed, the number of steps, the number of people that are involved, the number of rejections that will happen often just as a matter of course, 
a huge amount of bureaucracy goes into not even necessarily preventing prescription, but just slowing it down a great deal. And I don't see that that helps anybody with anything. So one of the goals for clinicians managing patients with chronic pain is to try to get folks on the lowest dose if you're going to prescribe opioids. And the lowest dose means the dose that controls pain and optimizes function and quality of life as hard as those things are to measure. But oftentimes when I've talked to patients about tapering their dose to a lower dose to see how they do, I get pushback. And part of it, I think it's fear among the patients that their pain is going to get worse. But can you tell me about how this has played out from a patient's perspective? That is, this kind of focus on getting people on lower doses. Well, I think you're exactly right. The tighter the prescription of narcotics becomes, the more it makes no sense for me to campaign to get less. I mean, the, the incentives in the system are for me to continue to get as much as I can or more, not less. Because if I work on tapering and that doesn't work out, now I've gone down a certain distance. How can I trust that I'm going to go back up to something that maybe I went down and it was okay for a couple of weeks, but the two, three months after that, it wasn't okay. And now I'm saying, look, I'm back where I was. Can we go back to the dose that I was at? Often I think you get a kind of, no, 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 you know, look, you've, you've made such progress and let's pursue this. It's like, well, no, I was functioning before and now I'm not functioning and you're punishing me for trying to work with you on tapering down. So I think there's a perverse misincentive in that sort of uh, system, in the way that the system has been tightened up. Again, I don't think it's helping anybody. Yeah, it actually reminds me of a concept that is termed pseudo-opioid resistance. And that is that some patients don't think it's in their best interest to tell you they're getting better on the opioid. Why? Because your incentive may be to, as soon as they're getting better, to decrease the medication that's helping them, in their mind, or you're going to stop looking for what's causing the pain. So even though you maybe have done way too much imaging studies, the patient is still concerned that there's something there that's causing that pain that you haven't identified yet. So they don't want to say they're getting better, even though they are getting better because of those two fears. I think part of what you said about the problem of going from caregiver to policeman, essentially, my understanding of the current medical model is sort of that I and my primary care provider are sort of the core of a medical team. We're supposed to be working together. I'm supposed to be honest with him, give him as much information as possible. We're trying to optimize my health. The opioid clampdown, I think, has contaminated that relationship. He's not supposed to trust me, basically, when I come through the door. And it's a little bit difficult, frankly, for me to trust him to sort of really feel like he's doing even what he thinks ought to be done versus just feeling the last time I tried to prescribe this, it took three weeks of phone calls back and forth. And then people in the care organization yelled at me and it was a bad scene. So yeah, I don't want to get into that. So is he protecting me from narcotics or is he protecting himself from the hassle of getting involved in that? I mean, I have to at least ask that question. I think you bring up a valid point. And I would say that the first visits not the first visit, but multiple visits, there is this distrust. I think the patient is wondering, do I believe the severity of their pain and maybe the need for continued opioids? And yeah, I'm worried. Am I being scammed, right? Am I being scammed by someone who may be diverting or maybe someone who has an addiction that I haven't been able to identify it so early on? So I think there is this distrust. And so I think the first visits can be really uncomfortable. But over time, when you get to know each other, it usually gets better. Well, a twist that I would put on that is that, as I said, my feeling is I'm supposed to be honest with my care providers. Radical idea, I know. When I taught writing, I used to say to students, handing in somebody else's writing is like giving somebody else's blood test. How can you expect to be properly diagnosed if you don't provide legitimate data? But again, in, in this context, 
I think in some ways it, it makes patients feel like they have to be actors. And you have to sort of think, do I look like I'm in enough pain? Do I look like I'm in too much pain and that's suspicious? Am I looking directly at the physician? This whole sort of issue of presentation, and that's profoundly upsetting. I mean, that's really not what should be happening in that context. The doctor-patient relationship is supposed to be a sacred relationship. It's a relationship that has its roots to some degree in religion, right, in healing, in a kind of priesthood. And we've just made a hash of that in so many ways, but I think particularly around the prescription of narcotics. Yeah, I mean, I think there is confusion among what patients in chronic pain should look like. Certainly patients in acute pain, yeah, their blood pressure's up, their heart rate is up, they look sick. Patients with chronic pain can look totally comfortable. I just look crabby. <laughs> you look crabby. And that doesn't mean their pain isn't real, just because they don't look the part. But let me, let me move on for a moment, and that is, I certainly have had patients who worry that I'm going to retire or I'm going to leave the state. Do you share those worries, concerns? Oh, absolutely. And also that means that even we have to think a great deal about changing provider in any way or changing network or changing insurance. What are the implications of that going to be? And it's also become, I feel like I should keep who I'm getting care from a secret because I'm able to get the medication that I need. And I know that there are fewer and fewer providers who are doing that. And I feel like if I mention names, then I'm in danger of having a flood of people come and assault somebody who's functioning as a provider for me, which are not good for them. And then it's a selfish thing, not good for me either. Yeah. I mean, I've actually had three examples of the concerns that patients could have. And so one is I've had patients admit to me that they're hoarding pills just in case I get sick or I get hit by a car. I have one patient who comes to see me once a year just to have a backup provider that knows them and is willing to prescribe opioids if their primary provider retires. And then lastly, even more dramatically, is a patient who had me write a letter on her behalf that said that her pain was severe so that she could qualify for assisted suicide in Switzerland if there comes a time where she doesn't have access to opioids for her pain. That was pretty dramatic. So another issue that comes up is that patients with pain on opioids, they may be accused of knowing too much when they ask for a specific medication or a specific dose. And let me just give a brief example, a family example, and then ask your own experience. And this is my aunt who has migraine headaches, and normally she's managed without any medications or non-opioids, but maybe once a year she ends up in the emergency room with severe, severe headache where she just can't stay at home. And she goes into the emergency room and she says, I have a migraine headache and I need Dilaudid. And what do you think happens? Well, you know what happens, right? So she gets these strange looks. And so she said to me, you know, Dan, you do this for a living. What the heck am I doing wrong? And I said, Harriet, stop asking for Dilaudid. Go into the emergency room and say, I've got a terrible headache and I'm not leaving until it's better. You can try whatever you want. Or I can tell you what's worked in the past. And they say, well, what's worked in the past? And she says, Dilaudid. And so she's met with a very different response when she does it that way. But it's interesting to me that we have this suspicion when someone comes in and says, this is the specific opioid that worked for me. So what's your perspective on all that? Well, I think you're pointing out that your aunt has learned to be a better actor, right? I mean, and you're sort of cueing her to, all right, these are the lines, and you say lines this way and not that way, which reinforces what we were talking about before. I think this is a subset of the larger problem of the sort of list of red flags for drug abuse basically. So for example, you mentioned pill hoarding before. So pill hoarding is a red flag, right? But if I don't have some sort of buffer supply, I mean, given that, let's say, providing physician is on vacation, 
I can end up talking to a covering physician. And when I say love, I mean hate. I love when they use this phrase, they'll say, we're not comfortable prescribing this medication in this quantity at this time. You'll just have to wait until your provider comes back. And I always think, well, so if I was getting what they thought was an excessive amount of insulin, that they had a documented file that showed that was the deal for the past couple of years, that's what had worked. Would they cut me off from my insulin for a week until my provider came back? I mean, that would be a malpractice suit on a platter, basically. But things like that happen, right? And, or the pharmacy doesn't have something in stock. And because it's a scheduled medication, you can't just go to another pharmacy. One has to be canceled. It has to be transmitted to another pharmacy, that kind of thing. As you said, you can't get angry. And you can't really demonstrate too much intensity overall, which is sort of bizarre, because if I'm completely laid back, then it doesn't really look like I'm in pain. If my attitude, it sounds like, doesn't matter to me, then your reflex ought to be, okay, well, he doesn't need it that much, so good, let's not do this. In terms of what you know, I'll go to uh, diabetes and what the doctor-patient relationship is supposed to be now, in my understanding. If I'm a good diabetic, I understand my body very well. I understand this brand of insulin works better than that brand. I need this amount under those circumstances, this amount under different circumstances, that sort of thing. But if I know the same things, if I'm as equally as conversant in what's going on with me and pain meds, particularly narcotics, then that's suspicious. So it's it sort of, again, I'm sort of whipsawed between I'm supposed to be a good patient and know things and talk, but if I know things and talk, then I'm making myself even more of a suspicious character. So I want to just thank you for coming and sharing your perspective and experience. It's invaluable to get the patient perspective on things that we do and kind of being in the patient's shoes for a little bit and gives us an appreciation for what we're doing and maybe how we can do things better. But I'd like you to give me some final thoughts that you may have on this topic. Well, first off, I'm very grateful for uh, having had this opportunity. And I'm also guardedly optimistic that a different and more nuanced conversation about this topic is beginning to happen. Again, I would situate this problem in the larger context of what I have been seeing now is the deprofessionalization of medicine. Again, I was a kid, you would go see a freestanding practitioner who maybe had a nurse who was his wife and his receptionist and his bookkeeper. And that was it. You had this direct relationship and that practitioner did close to whatever he or she wanted to do. At this point, if you're an MD, if you're a nurse practitioner, if you're a physician assistant, first off, you probably work for some large care organization. Then you have to deal with the insurers. Then you have state regulations. Then you have federal regulations. Then you have recommendations from your professional societies, because there'll be any number of those. I think the broad and catastrophic misinterpretation of the CDC guidelines has finally triggered some pushback, that the AMA has begun to push back against that, other professional organizations, and even some patients' groups. And I hope that we can get to some reasonable equilibrium, basically, because I take the problem seriously. It's not that people are reacting to nothing in clamping down on narcotics. I just think they're reacting to the wrong people and in the wrong way. Just one final thought is from the provider perspective, it really as you've mentioned, it's a challenge, uh, bringing the pendulum back some. There's no question we overprescribed opioids. We became opiocentric in our treatment of pain. But I do worry that the pendulum swings too far so that those individuals who are benefiting or who may potentially benefit won't have access to the opioid. And although it's a smaller group than has been getting them historically, 
we need to do it in a way that patients who will benefit or have been benefiting still have access. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I would again like to thank Dr. Alford and Dr. Unger for joining us in conversation about managing bias and stigma in chronic opioid prescribing and complex situation with patients. For more information about free NEJM Knowledge Plus Pain Management and Opioids module, go to knowledgeplus.negm.org. Curbside Consults is a production of the NEJM Group, and we come to you from NEJM Resident 360. Our production team for this episode includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, Kathy Stern, and Josette Akresh-Gonzalez. Special thanks also to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamnevik. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEJM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the nejm.org pages. On behalf of NEJM Resident 360, this is Dr. Ahmad Zaheen signing off.